0: Welcome to the Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence based research and cutting edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubbs. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcast, evidence informed, practical based. This is season two, episode 42, and I'm really excited today to talk to a leading sports scientist, strength and conditioning coach, and speed expert, Dr. Chris Bellon. In this episode, Chris will discuss four things you need to know about getting people fast and how sled towing and hill sprints can help to accomplish this task. Chris will talk about progressing athletes from general to specific, fundamental exercises to train specific qualities, and just how important the relationship between the weight room and quality speed development truly is. He'll also share his insights on monitoring athletes, time-efficient workouts for busy practitioners, and his key tips for upgrading acceleration and sprinting. I really enjoyed this discussion with Chris. Fantastic insights and practical applications. And if you haven't listened to his colleague, Dr. Cody Hahn, I had him on a few months back in Season 2, Episode 32, and he talked all about muscle science, training to failure, uh, testosterone and the soy controversy so definitely check that out you can link to the papers discussed here and some others chris sent over to me as well in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast as well as the podcast summary if you're interested in more on this topic of sprinting we have got some great guests from previous episodes so circle back to season one episode five with the altus performance team dr jaz rendawa and sprint coach jason hetler and Season 1, Episode 40, with Sprint Coach and Consultant to Many Top Pros, Mr. Derek Hansen. Of course, you can check out all these experts and many, many more on YouTube, iTunes, or your favorite podcatching platform. And while you're there, please subscribe and you won't miss any of the phenomenal guests we've got lined up for the rest of this year. All right, before we get started, a quick word from this episode's sponsor, Totem Sport. Totem Sport is the only 100% natural supplement in the world. No sugar, no artificial flavors, absolutely nothing added. What is it? Totem Sport is the world's purest deep ocean mineral water. Collected from natural algae blooms in the Atlantic Ocean, Totem Sport is the only sport drink supplement that contains all 78 naturally occurring minerals and trace elements. The research on deep ocean mineral water is ramping up, a recent study highlighting its major promise as the optimal rehydrating strategy over spring water and other sports drinks. Sport is the evolution of hydration, the world's only 100% natural sport drink. Tested and approved by Informed Sport and Informed Choice. Check out totemsport.co.uk and defy the norm. Okay, on to the show, Season 2, Episode 42. Enjoy. My guest today is Dr. Chris Bellon, an assistant professor in the Department of Exercise Science at LaGrange College. He teaches a variety of courses in the areas of sport physiology, motor behavior, coaching theory, and strength and conditioning. In addition, Dr. Bellon serves as the Director of Sport Performance in the LaGrange College Speed Center. Within this role, he oversees the strength and conditioning practices for several athletic teams, including baseball, basketball, soccer, swimming, tennis, and volleyball. Chris, really appreciate you carving out the time today.
1: My pleasure, Mark. Thank you for having me.
0: Awesome. I'm looking forward to talking physical preparation, athletic development here today. But before we get rolling, can you maybe give listeners a little bit more about your journey to your current role at the Grange College?
1: Sure. Uh, I mean, obviously, as you pointed out before the interview started, I'm, I'm not originally from the South. I'm actually from the Northeast. I grew up in New York. Uh, I got into the sports performance world about 10 years ago in the private sector, working at a Velocity Sports Performance, and uh, I worked there through my master's degree and then i wound up leaving to pursue a doctoral degree at east tennessee state university and uh for those of you unfamiliar with the program it's one of the few that allow you to be a strength and conditioning coach while pursuing a doctoral degree so it. i had a uh, yeah it was a lot of fun obviously you have people like dr mike stone dr brad deweese dr kimmy sato over there they're kind of rock stars in the field so sure. i got to study and mentor under those guys while being a strength coach and uh I got to work with women's basketball, track and field, volleyball, softball, uh, as well as a host of other Olympic sports as they are an Olympic training site for bobsled, luge, canoe, kayak, and and just a whole bunch of other sports as well. So um, it was a really fruitful experience, and following my defense of my dissertation, I wound up coming down here to LaGrange College, and we were looking at the time to start a master's in strength and conditioning program to uh, somewhat model what ETSU did there with – having that practice built into the curriculum where you could have grad students be a strength and conditioning coach while taking strength and conditioning specific sports, uh, coursework. And that's what we've done so far. And that's pretty much how I came down here to, to get that going.
0: That's phenomenal. And, uh, I mean, amazing too to have so much exposure to, uh, to so many different sports and and not only on the research side, but on the practical side. So excited to, to dip in here today. You've sent over a bunch of really cool studies that we can sort of frame this around today. So definitely encourage everyone to, uh, read a lot of those papers, which we'll post in the show notes, but Chris, I'm going to start here with a quote from one of those papers. Maximal performance demonstrated in many athletic competitions hinges on an athlete's ability to accelerate. Acceleration is enhanced through the maintenance of optimal mechanics. As such, any attempt to improve an athlete's acceleration must develop an athlete's ability to demonstrate optimal kinematics. Can you translate this for listeners?
1: Yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, realistically, to be honest with you, this it's funny too, because... You know, I told you I started in the private sector like 10 years ago at a Velocity Sports Performance, and and obviously Velocity Sports Performance was founded by Lauren Seagrave, and like the first thing I ever learned in the field uh, was from him, and he said the four things you need to know about getting people fast is that you have to teach them how to create a large force, large ground reaction force over a short time, oriented in the proper direction and through an optimal range of motion, and this was like 10 years ago, so I'm like, yeah, you know, sounds... Pretty simple and for sure. Go through all the way through my education. And you know, you have all the research in the world talking about uh you know ground reaction forces and all kinds of kinematic data out there. And when you kind of connect all the dots, it really does come back to those four things. And as simplistic as that sounds, realistically, you know, optimizing speed, whether it's linear or multi-direction. Those are the four tenets that you have to adhere to, um, creating that large force over short time oriented in the proper direction through that full range of motion. So um, I think you can kind of demystify that particular quote and break it down to really those four components. That's
0: terrific. And you know, for strength coaches, practitioners listening in, can you talk a little bit about how things like maybe sled towing or hill sprints can help to accomplish this task?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think realistically, I mean, if you take a look at those four tenants, um, every single training tool is going to be geared towards one of those four things. And realistically, if you take a look at something like sled towing, what you're essentially having them do is just teaching them how to develop a larger ground reaction force. And one of the things that the research is becoming uh, clearer and clearer on that, you know, it seemed to be common knowledge, but it was only just validated recently in the last few years is that you have a longer ground contact time during uh, heavier loaded sled sprints, so obviously if you have 30% body mass versus 10% body mass, you, your foot's going to be on the ground longer to move 30% body mass than it is 10% body mass. Yep. So, um, but the the actual um, the actual performance effect is going to be a little bit different. You know, you're producing force for a longer period of time in one, whereas you're not producing it for as long a period of time in the other one. Um and realistically, going back to the training process and where all that fits in the training year, it might be more advantageous to use one type of either sled towing or some other sort of tool at one intensity at a specific time of the year, whereas another tool might be more appropriate at a different time of the year
0: yeah, it's amazing how taking context into account you know the athletes sport the
1: um, you know the
0: demands of the athlete as well. so in terms of practice, you know you In some of the research, they're talking about procedural memory development. So, How does this fit into the equation, and how do we develop that that automation that we need to help athletes?
1: That's a good question. I think it goes back to uh, sequencing. And when you look at the training process, and really if you kind of go back to those four tenets, you know, big four, short time, proper direction, and full range of motion, I think if you take a look at those four tenets and you look at where, uh, where they apply over the course of the training year, you could emphasize one of those four things at any given time of the training process. So um, if you take a look at it from the perspective of the training year, if you look at the training year, you have general preparation, specific preparation, pre-competition, main competition, taper, peak, and and it kind of goes down the line, right? And everybody, regardless of the periodization or programming paradigm that you might subscribe to, I think everybody could almost universally agree that in the beginning of the off season during that general preparatory period, you're probably doing higher training volumes at lower intensities in the weight room. You know, most people are doing things, strength endurance oriented reps, eight to 12, somewhere, you know, 60 to 75% one RM. And realistically those things, um, they influence the way that you produce force, right? So if you're looking at uh, big force in short time, what you do in the weight room drastically affects what your big force and short time, uh, or how you're going to emphasize those qualities for speed. So for example, if you take a look at the general prep period, if you're doing sets of eight to 10, what is pretty much shown throughout the research universally is that those higher training volumes at lower intensities reduce an athlete's ability to produce rapid forces. So rate of force development, power, um, the ability to produce those rapid ground reaction forces isn't really um, all that evident after those training periods. That's not what those training periods are for. So those accumulation-type training periods, um, they're used to basically get you ready to go to the more sport specific stuff. So I'm kind of getting towards your, your procedural memory development. Um, If you're not going to wind up enhancing big force short time over that sort of a a time period, it's probably a really good idea to teach the athlete to orient those forces in the proper direction in that time period. Because if you're taking the other two pieces of the puzzle, big force and short time, off the table because of what's going on in the weight room, you're going to have to make adjustments and accommodate and emphasize the things that can be focused on. Um, focusing on the athlete, what the athlete's set up to do rather than what the athlete isn't set up to do physiologically. So going towards uh, procedural memory development, I mean, really what that means is kind of building a movement from the back end forward. So for example, in a sprint, you might take a look at this from the perspective of starting the sprint with acceleration, right? So acceleration precedes the transition in max velocity. So in those training periods where you're doing really high volumes of work, At lower intensities and the athlete's ability to rapidly produce force is lowered it might be a really good idea to work on emphasizing the proper direction that they're orienting those forces so getting an athlete particularly somebody like a soccer player who stands straight upright instead of accelerating for a longer period of time that might be a really good point in time to give them something like a sled toe at like 30 or 40 percent body mass because what it's been what's been Recently, shown is that those heavier loaded sled sprints actually orient those forces in a more horizontal direction. Interesting. So, when you're able to do that, now all of a sudden you go to the second phase of training. They have a more efficient first three steps of their acceleration, and you've sequenced things now nicely. So, that way, the second half of their sprint might be quote unquote potentiated, right? So, uh, procedural memory development is just pretty much getting them to the point where you're teaching the athlete uh, the first pr- part of the procedure, essentially the first part of the sprint to potentiate the second part of the sprint. It just so happens that physiologically, it kind of aligns with what you're doing in the weight room at that time.
0: Yeah, that's terrific. And you know, as athletes move into that second phase, in your experience working in so many different sports, um, you know, how does that look in terms of how it might be different between one athlete, one sport versus another? Is it, is it still somewhat similar in terms of how you would progress that or or is there some changes now as you get into that second phase?
1: There are definitely more changes and like everything else, you know, everybody works general to specific, right? So in the beginning, to be honest with you, almost every single athlete, I would argue every single athlete would benefit from doing basic acceleration work, right? And obviously it might not be super sport specific to have a soccer player come out of a crouch start because that's not something that's super sport specific. However, I'd argue that the first three steps of acceleration from a standstill will still give you a massive benefit from re accelerating out of a change of direction. So, when you start progressing from the basic to the more specific, that's where you might start taking some of those basic things, kind of working the procedural memory development aspect of it, and proceeding the skill based a little bit more on sports specificity. So, while you might be dealing with some sort of acceleration or basic acceleration in the beginning of the training program, Uh, as you get forward into the training process and a little further along, I mean, it's pretty much going to be dependent on the demands of the sport. For example, you have somebody like a soccer player. They spend most of their time reacquiring acceleration position. So it might be accelerating from coming on the move, change of direction, uh, unplanned changes of direction, whereas somebody like a volleyball player, that might be a little bit different. We might be focused more on... um, accelerating from different positions out of a different type of change of direction. So it really does take on a little bit more context specificity and sports specificity the further into the training process you go.
0: Absolutely. I mean, definitely something with basketball players is uh, you know probably similar to volleyball players in terms of the different demands um, and how that might differ from sports like like soccer. And um, last year I had uh, Derek Hansen on talking about you know sprinting and um, I'll actually read another quote here from a paper you sent over because it sort of dovetails into what he would mentioned, which is, you know, contrary to intuition, fast and slow runners take essentially the same amount of time to reposition their limbs when sprinting at their different respective top speeds. Hence, the time taken to reposition the limbs in the air is not a differentiating factor for human speed. Rather, the predominant mechanism by which faster runners attain at swifter speeds is by applying greater forces in relation to body mass during shorter periods of foot ground force application. Um, awesome, Chris. Can you break that down as well for listeners and talk about stride length and stride rate?
1: Heck yeah, man. As uh, Peter Wayans' quote, I believe, from uh, 2000. And that was an awesome paper. And one of the things that comes out of that paper is just the relationship between kinetics and kinematics. And uh, Dr. Ken Clark, I was fortunate enough to have him on uh, my dissertation committee. He was my outside committee member, uh, has a phenomenal paper out there uh, linking the relationship between kinetics and kinematics. And what's been pretty clear is that there is a strong relationship between the way an athlete produces force and the kinematic outcome. And if you take a look at the way somebody produces force, for example, a soccer player, um, while their, their swing time of their leg isn't all that different because they tend to sprint more upright, they're the the way that they strike the ground it's a little bit more vertical in nature so they don't accelerate as much uh in those first three steps as well as somebody like a track and field athlete obviously a track and field athlete's going to have a much more anterior lean torso so the way that those guys produce force will out just across the board change the way that they move kinematically and uh, i actually saw that and My dissertation and I'm still in the process of publishing the third paper but one of the things I did was I actually compared these sprint kinematics um, or different sprint metrics uh, such as step length step frequency and ground contact time between stronger soccer players and weaker soccer players and the interesting thing was for soccer players there was actually no statistical difference in stride length between stronger and weaker players where the where the uh the big difference seemed to show up was step frequency was a lot higher and ground contact time was a lot lower. And, you know, surprise, surprise, the stronger athletes were faster. We kind of knew that going in. I wanted to figure out why. So mechanistically, the way that they put force into the ground changes the way that they, uh, they manifest their sprint metrics. So there is a definite relationship between the two.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely fascinating stuff. And especially with, And, you know, as you get further down the rabbit hole, trying to understand how all this is playing out. And, you know, if we zoom back out a little bit for for listeners and trainers, um, you know, maybe you can give a few examples of, you know, acceleration, max velocity and speed maintenance exercises that uh, um, folks could 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 use or implement with their clients.
1: Sure. I mean, I think really, just like anything else, it's kind of similar to the weight room. Everybody agrees that the basics work. Um, You know, if you're talking about resistance training, the vast majority of athletes and coaches, they agree that a squat and a deadlift are beneficial. If you get really good at the basics, things like a sled toe, things like teaching an incline sprint well, those are all things that will massively be beneficial to an athlete's acceleration. You know, and those are things that you could sprinkle in throughout the course of the training year. So my big staples that I typically use are sled towing, as well as incline sprinting, particularly early in the training process. I don't think you can go wrong with those for just about any athlete. And mind you, they, like anything else, they have to be coached well. For sure. But those are definitely my bread and butter in terms of my acceleration. Um, in terms of the change of direction, uh, just like anything else, landing mechanics, right? I mean, that's kind of step one. There's a, a, an easy progression. I think uh, Lauren Landau's done a great job at the last few uh, NSCA conferences kind of revealing his uh, deceleration and change of direction progression, which to be honest with you, it's just fairly logical progressing from landing mechanics to planned change of direction to unplanned changes of direction. Um, it's more so about the actual sequence in which you put the drills than the drills themselves that are important.
0: Awesome. And how about things like in terms of max velocity, the different um, strategies that you lean on there?
1: Uh, Yeah, honestly, I don't touch max velocity as much with a lot of my athletes, because to be honest with you, at the division three level, like 75 per 80, maybe 80% of the training years voluntary. So the time that I have my athletes is often very, very limited. So I try to put more of my eggs in the acceleration basket than the max velocity basket. But realistically, I like to do uh, similar to what a track and field athlete might call a float, fly, float. So you have you know, red cone, green cone, red cone, green cone, where they're accelerating at the green cones, and then they're kind of maintaining or floating as soon as they hit the red cones, and then they're re-accelerating at the green cones. So trying to make sure that they get some more time at top speed without having to build up all that time to reach it every single time. So float, fly, float is something I've done a lot with my soccer players, uh, some baseball players as well, um, and obviously doing things like a step over run, the basic things on a wall uh fast claws and whatnot. So some of the basic rudimentary drills, but the more applied drills are something like a float fly float.
0: That's awesome. And then when we talk about the speed maintenance side of things, are there certain drills or, or exercises there that you lean on?
1: Honestly, I don't touch speed maintenance a lot with my athletes because a lot of my athletes are team sport athletes and it's just not something that they that they really focus on a whole lot during their gameplay. Um I spend the majority of my time looking at just quality changes of direction and, and to be honest with you. The more time I've spent, this is something that's actually probably the most beneficial thing I've had as a coach over the last two years, because I've spent a lot of time with the sport coaches. um, I've spent a great deal of time sitting down with people, sport coaches, uh, trying to watch practices to get an understanding of the movement demands of each individual position for the strategy that the coach is trying to employ, because you get to a point where movement's just so specific that you kind of have to carve out your own progression for each individual position. So getting them to a point where um, I'm trying to tailor the program a little bit more towards their position seems to give me a little bit more benefit than focusing on something like speed maintenance for most of my team sport athletes.
0: That's terrific. And you mentioned, of course, you know, in all your experience and, you know, over all those years and working with different uh, teams and athletes, especially in the early years, you know, what were some of the things that really stood out to you? Um, whether it was learning experiences or even, um, almost mistakes or things that you, um, picked up on in those early years that, uh, that really stood out for you?
1: The biggest thing that I've learned over the last few years, and this is credit to, uh, Dr. Deweese and Dr. Stone, the relationship between what goes on in the weight room and the athlete's ability to Perform quality speed development is extremely close, and it's a lot more of an important consideration than people make it out to be. Um, Your speed development drills, tools, volumes, intensities, anything that you're programming, should 100% most definitely reflect what's going on in the weight room, because what you do in the weight room impacts the way the athlete produces force. And if the way the athlete produces force is changed, the way that they're going to move kinematically is changed. And like I said before, Dr. Clark has shown a great relationship between uh, the way an athlete produces force and the resulting kinematics. And obviously anything that you do to change the way the athlete produces force is going to manifest itself in your speed development. So uh, I've tried to do a better job of asking the athletes to do what they're capable of, and I think in the past I've done – somewhat of a poor job. I might've asked an athlete to do something that they're not capable of doing. Um, because when you're in strength endurance, for example, and your ability to rapidly produce those high forces is diminished. Uh, why would I ask an athlete to hit top speed at that point? You know, like they're, they're not capable of doing it. They can hit a top speed, but it's not going to be the best of their ability. And it's certainly not going to be a PR and, uh, not that you're looking at PR in practice, but you're looking to drive progression in practice. And they're just not set up to do that.
0: For sure that's that's really interesting I mean I had um, Mike Robertson on a few weeks back and he talked about you know training athletes when movement quality is poor so I guess a question for you Chris would be when, when some of the collegiate athletes come in and, and potentially their their movement quality is poor or, or their you know the strength and power in the gym is not looking as good as it could be what are some of the strategies there that you are problem solving that you um, that you go through to help get them back on track?
1: That's a good question and to be honest with you we are very lucky to have uh, somebody else you've had on the podcast before Dr. Cody Hahn. Uh he's one of our faculty members here and he's done an unbelievable job of setting up our monitoring system. So Fantastic. when the athletes we, when the athletes walk in the door we get a body mass, a jump height from a static jump and a jump height for a counter movement jump and we're plugging that into a database that Dr. Hahn made and it kind of gives us Uh, Somewhat of a makeshift readiness score. And obviously, you know, I think a readiness score, one overall number telling you how ready they are is kind of a mythical creature that people seem to chase. But it's not meant to be a Swiss army knife. It's meant to give us just a quick estimation as to, on a scale of one to 10, how ready is this athlete to train? So if we have somebody who's in the red, for example, because we use a stoplight system. Uh, we might wind up taking out some of the volume for that day. If we have somebody who's in the orange, uh, maybe you wind up making a exercise substitution, or you tweak the intensity, or you change the volume. There's there just a bunch of different things you can do. But my go-to is often to uh, reduce the training volume for the day because it seems that training volume versus intensity seems to be more of a a culprit in managing fatigue.
0: Absolutely, and you, you know, you touched on the the readiness factor there, and of course, you know, mentioning the counter movement jump and Are there other things for yourself as a coach that you guys are, um, that you either use um, at the college or things that for yourself you find valuable for trying to evaluate uh, an athlete's readiness?
1: Absolutely, man. Yeah, it's, uh, to be honest with you, uh, pen and paper. Uh, Session RPE is super underrated. Uh, Taking a scale of one to 10 RPE of how physically demanding was the session tells you a lot, you know, and A good friend of mine, Dr. Matt Sams, uh, he finished his doctorate at ETSU as well, and he did a a great dissertation on monitoring athletes' training loads with men's soccer at ETSU and a great thesis as well, and he showed uh, really nice reliability and a really nice way to gauge the dose-response effect of a a certain type of training load. So taking a session RPE, you know, essentially taking – Uh, a number on a scale of one to 10, how physically demanding was this session and multiplying it by the duration of the practice in minutes, giving you a session training load. That is a really, really nice tool to identify how much work the athlete did. And I know it's subjective, but uh, there's a lot of good evidence to show that there's uh, a training response. That's definitely indicative of what went on according to their subjective perception of the exercise. So as training volume tends to escalate you start to see the squat jumps go down you start to see the counter movement jumps go down uh, and you could see like a severe depression in things like rate of force development and power all those critical qualities to sport start to plummet when you start to see those session rpe's accumulate and the goal for us what we're trying to get to here is essentially a threshold uh an rpe threshold for each athlete you know where is that threshold that you shouldn't cross as a coach you know if your rpe training load for the week is somewhere around three thousand arbitrary units and you're at 30 you're at three thousand by the time wednesday gets here and you still have friday and saturday to go that's a problem you can anticipate peak power to go down you can't anticipate jump height to go down so um, as simplistic as it sounds a piece of pen a paper and a switch mat go a heck of a long way
0: absolutely yeah it's incredible i mean uh... Human body, obviously, human brain—such complex systems—and it's amazing how um, just asking a question can be as valuable, if not more so, than some of the really expensive uh, technology and things that are out there. So that's, that's fascinating stuff. And Chris, for you with collegiate athletes, you know, what's another? If we talk about things that limit performance, um, obviously, student athletes have a lot on their plates in terms of academic. Um, mm. There's there's a sleep component. There's a nutrition component you know what are some other areas for you that you find that athletes um, you know it's it's an area that that can limit performance or that you find you need to address in your collegiate athletes
1: it, you know it's funny mark cuz it's obviously you know Dr. Hahn and I he's he's a physiology baller if you will um, he's done some incredible stuff physiologically and at the end of the day we've had some conversations where they're super in depth physiologically and you know we look at each other and I'm like wow that would be awesome Uh, In terms of performance, what this type of training volume or intensity could do, um, you know, any sort of macronutrient breakdowns, and we look at each other like, yeah, but they don't eat and they don't sleep and they're always underhydrated, like so, (laughs) literally anything. Yeah, right. You know what I'm saying? So really, what it comes down to at the end of the day, it's the relationship with the athlete. And the biggest humbling thing I've had to learn, especially at Division Three, because Division Three, it's not like Division One. You know, in the uh, the off season at Division One, you get those guys for eight hours minimum mandatory time a week, so you're seeing them no matter what. If you're out of season in Division Three, it is a hundred percent voluntary. So if you don't have a good relationship with your athlete, if you don't have a reason for them to come in. And enjoy their training. They're not going to show up. It's that simple. And if you don't have a relationship with them, there's no way that they're going to be open to receiving any sort of education or any sort of uh, value you might bring in terms of improving their nutrition or giving them a reason to change their sleep strategies. You know, those are always built from the relationship out. So, as cool as the athlete monitoring is, I think that's for me a strong tool in simply building the relationship with the athlete to the point where they're so bought in. Where they'll do what they t- what you tell them to do, and at the end of the day, if you have an athlete giving you 100% doing exactly what you're asking them to do, more times than not, that's going to go much better than having somebody who has a perfect program that an athlete won't follow.
0: Yeah, I think there's a lot of uh, strength coaches in Canada right now sort of nodding their heads and agreeing with you. It's a similar setup in, in Canada in terms of the compliance or the uh, the amount of touchpoint hours with with athletes. So that's definitely the buy-in, the relationship, such a crucial. Part of this whole uh, this whole puzzle, and you know, if, if we talk about sort of the practitioner side here, and, and someone like yourself, Chris, you know, busy days, long days, whether it's research, whether it's working with athletes, you know, how do you manage your days to keep your performance high, your energy levels up, and to be able to actually train yourself?
1: That's a good question. Uh, when I get an answer, I'll let you know. <laughs> For um,
0: sure, right? know. work in progress.
1: Yeah, uh, I mean, it's it might not be a, uh, <laughs> it's interesting because I think after I had a, a little girl born over the summer, she's going to be 12 weeks old on Saturday and congrats. Uh, congrats. Th- thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah. And I think, uh, it just really emphasizes number one, marrying the right person. <laughs> I mean, please, <laughs> sure. uh, my wife is a rock star. My daughter's awesome. And to have the level of support to be able to do that and the understanding, um, when I have to work a little bit late and I have to put the needs of my students or my athletes uh, a little bit more at the forefront, again, like, you know, the, my marriage and my my relationship with my daughter will not be compromised under any circumstances, but there are times where you have to ask for help, and uh, realistically, I mean… I don't think I balanced it all that well. I just think I just married an awesome wife. <laughs> I hate to tell you. That's, that's,
0: <laughs> that's, a, that's, that's a good secret. And I, I imagine for yourself, like the workouts have got to be getting shorter, right? Time is time is of the essence. Are there certain oh, exactly. strategies that you use to kind of get shorter, uh, quick, efficient workouts in?
1: Yeah, honestly, I, I have to say, uh, Cressy does an awesome job of putting some information out there, because I know uh, Eric Cressy had twins not long ago, and one of the first things I did when my daughter was on the way, it's like, here's a strength and conditioning strategy. Here's some program design strategies for dads who are under sleeping. It's like, OK, awesome. Great. And really, the name of the game for me is volume. Just trying to get as much volume as possible because, you know, realistically, at this point, when you're just learning how to be a dad, uh, director, of sport performance, assistant professor, department chair you know, the the name of the game is like the anti-dad bod at this point, you know, <laughs> sure. so the training quality isn't exactly what I want it to be. But at this point, you just got to learn to be nice to yourself and just put some things in perspective. So, yeah,
0: I like that. Yeah, definitely getting the volume in is key. And, you know, I think this is one where a lot of, you know, trainers and strength coaches listening in would, you know, the clients who are in that sort of age bracket. So if, if those clients are wanting to get into, you know, sprinting and working on acceleration, you know, what are some things to consider there when you're working with a population that's, you know, sitting for a large period of the day, maybe you know, hasn't trained uh, for you know uh, quite a few years. What are some things for you that you would be, you know, either red flags or ways to progress that for, for the for that client?
1: Oh, good question. Uh, to be honest with you, um, most people that sit all the time, or most uh, the Division Three athletes are just notorious for this. But really, they move so poorly to begin with, and it's not a sexy answer, but really. Uh, Number one, focus on the quality of the warmup. The one thing that I hate doing more than anything is warming up. And I think everybody could probably agree with that. But the warmup itself and doing something comprehensive and allowing you to be able to hit those good positions when you're moving is paramount. Because if you're not warm and you can't move through that optimal range of motion, getting back to those big four, your ability to produce force is going to be limited. You know, I think a lot of my people, when I watch my soccer athletes, Uh, I think I've improved some sprint times, just allowing them to get into better hip flexion. You know, you put them on the PT table for a Thomas test and they have the hip mobility of a crowbar, you know, and if if you just take some time to do some dedicated, uh, just hip flexor work at not taking that away from not taking away the exercise stimulus in the weight room, they're still squatting, they're still deadlifting. We're still doing all kinds of things that are appropriate to get them stronger, but, you do have to emphasize the movement quality because if the movement quality is poor, you can't hit the positions to express the force that you're gaining from the weight room. So, I would say, you know, when you're having those people just starting out, you can't undervalue the value of a good warm-up and sticking to the basics, you know, uh, less is more. Get on the incline, do a good warm-up, get on the incline. If you do, uh, you know, two sets of five incline sprints at, you know, like a 5 to 6 degree grade for 10 to 20 yards, I mean, that that's a decent place to start.
0: Yeah, I think that's really valuable. And expert like yourself reinforce not only the fundamentals, but this, you know, being able to hit these positions, the importance of being able to hit them. Um, I think helps a lot of clients as well to to understand that this is where their focus needs to be, versus always on the output side of things or, or, or checking their numbers. So, uh, right, that's the great advice. And you know, Chris, for yourself in terms of your work, you know, what type of research or, or what's got you excited, um, you know, in the coming years for for things that are either coming down the pipeline or work that you're doing yourself?
1: Honestly, I'm more excited for my students. Uh, we really have a great master's degree program here in strength and conditioning, and we're uh, in our second full year. Um, we just had our first cohort leave, and we've had guys go to uh, one of our students is working under Clyde Brewer at the Toronto Blue Jays. Um, we have a guy over at NC State, uh, James Madison University, and it's just fun to watch some of these guys leave our program and go out there and do things that are – they're just, they're starting the journey, you know, and they're doing it right. So I think I, I, my publications are just obviously lacking because I spend the most of my time sitting in the weight room, watching over my kids and trying to really treat it kind of like the medical school model where they'll watch me coach for a good period of time. And over time I start to stand behind them. And, you know, the mentorship is something that I really harp on here and making sure that you have quality mentorship opportunities. So, you're starting to see the fruits of those labors start to come out. And, uh, you know, we have a great faculty here with Dr. Cody Hahn, Dr. Caleb Williams, Dr. Amber Liker, and, you know, the collaborative efforts that we have are starting to pay some dividends in the, the form of our graduates.
0: Yeah, it's fantastic. You guys definitely have a, an all-star team over there. So that's, uh, exciting times. And, you know, I want to definitely respect your time here, Chris. So before we wrap up here, last couple of questions for you. Um, you know for athletes if we circle back to the topic of sort of sprinting and acceleration you know what's one piece of advice that you'd give an athlete who's looking to improve in this area
1: i would say get good at the basics i think a lot of people and again like it kind of you know part b of that that uh, statement is in order to get good at the basics I and mean, from a coaching perspective that's obviously paramount you know you want to make sure your athletes are good at the basics so for anybody that wants to get faster I mean, people start worrying about overspeed training and doing every single kind of plyometric progression. Dude, get on the incline and sprint fast. Like, that's really (laughs) step number one. Uh, You know, make sure sure your arm action is okay. Sprint for 10 yards. And when you get good at sprinting 10 yards uphill, sprint for 15. When you are good at 15, sprint 20. And then go to flat ground. Um, You know, from from the athlete side, it doesn't sound super sexy. And I think people still think there's like this secret, like Da Vinci code to getting faster, you know, and I think from the that coaching magic pers- bullet, right? Right. Yeah. From the coaching perspective, you tell somebody this and they're like, nah, I think I'm going to go with this program I found online. This looks way cooler. So, you know, it kind of goes back to getting that relationship where it needs to be. So you can put something in front of them that's basic and it still holds value because they trust you, not the program.
0: Great advice. That's, that's terrific. And Chris, last question here for you is one that I always get online from folks who want me to ask uh, coaches like yourself, experts like yourself. You know, on your bookshelf, what are you reading these days? What's uh, got you excited in terms of whether it's in your field or outside your field?
1: It's a good question. Honestly, I've I've really started to read a lot more in uh, leadership theory, and I've really I teach advanced coaching theory here, and one of the components of that is leadership theory. So there's a great book um, called Turn the Ship Around. Great leadership story about a navy fleet that had a uh, a ship that was ranked the worst ship in the entire navy, Uh, and a great leader walks on board, and all of a sudden, all of these cracks in the foundation, you know, they have light brought to them, and. It's not so much the crew that you have, it's how you lead them. And you can do a lot with a little if you're doing right by the right people and leading in the right way. So, you know, at the end of the day, you can only coach a squat so well. You can only coach a deadlift so well. At some point in time, you're going to reach a limiting return with how good your eyes are. And it's important to have great eyes. But again, if you can't lead people and if you can't inspire people to follow you, they're not going to give you a maximal effort. In my case, damn, they won't even show up, <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> <You know? laughs> You know, if they're not going to show up, and they're definitely not going to give you a maximal effort. I mean, there, there's a big difference between a 90% effort and 100% effort. So, you know, that, that leadership theory is a big deal.
0: That's awesome, Chris. That's fantastic. Really appreciate you uh, carving out the time today. You know, where can people stay connected with you and keep up with all your fantastic research?
1: Oh, thank you. Appreciate it. Uh, at Doc Bellon, D-O-C-B-E-L-L-O-N on Twitter. Uh, yeah. And check out our grad program. We have Dr. Cody Hahn and, and team over here at LaGrange College with the Masters of Strength and Conditioning. So please uh, feel free to reach out to us, contact us at any point. Uh, email us cbellon at lagrange.edu.
0: Fantastic. We'll definitely include the links to the papers that we discussed here and the ones that you sent over in the show notes at drbubscom forward slash podcast. And we'll also include a link there as well for Dr. Cody Hahn's uh, podcast interview. I think that was episode 32. Um, so thanks again for everyone else tuning in. If you have any questions for Chris or want to leave a comment on today's episode, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach out on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Dr. Bubs. Of course, if you enjoy the show, please take a minute, subscribe on YouTube, iTunes, or your favorite podcatching platform. Fantastic. Thanks again, everyone. And see you guys all next week.